Welcome to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life. Perhaps you could just start off by introducing yourself. Thanks, Cliff. Uh, so my name is James Bonamy and I am a lecturer with Monash Nursing and Midwifery at Monash University. Um, I'm also a clinical nurse specialist in the Victorian Adult Burn Service, which is based at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. Great. Thanks. Welcome aboard. Thank you. James, you've worked at the Victoria Adult Burn Service at the Alfred since 2011, I think. Yep. And you're currently a clinical nurse specialist, though it may be a bit of revision for quite a few of our listeners to the podcast. I wonder if you could take us through the ABCs of burns assessment and first-line management. Sure. Um, burn injuries do make people nervous. But I think as long as they are managed like any other injury, working through your primary and secondary assessment, they should not be frightening. And hopefully some of the tips that I've got make it less frightening for some of the novice uh, ED nurses. Like with uh, any injury, you'd start off with your primary assessment. So with our uh, burn victims or burn survivors, our biggest concern is always that there is an airway injury. But there are a couple of things that you can look out for that would suggest there is more likely to be an airway injury. Trying to find out from the paramedics, for example, where was the burn victim found? Was, was it in an enclosed space? Was it a bedroom fire, for example, where their bedroom door was closed, they woke up and the room was filled with smoke or fire? If it's been in, in an enclosed space, if the fire's been in an enclosed space, then it is more likely that the person will have an airway injury. Looking at whether they have a presence of carbonaceous sputum, so getting them to actually cough, expectorate some sputum and having a look at it to see whether it has a sooty or gritty appearance. Uh, men with facial hair, is their beard singed, for example? Uh, nasal hair as well, um, looking to see whether there is any burnt nasal hair. Um, the hair on their head, has their fringe been singed? Has their um, sideburns been singed? Is there some sort of evidence that they have had exposure to either flame directly or heat um, or potentially inhaled um, some soot uh, as well? The other thing we always need to be really careful about as well when we're thinking about airway is C-spine. So has the person been uh, injured from an electrical injury where they're likely to have been thrown a distance or has there been an explosive event which has thrown them as well? Or even something collapses on them. So, you know, one of the kind of things that lurk in the shadow with burns because, you know, uh, sometimes we can be a bit overwhelmed by the burn itself, um, uh, coming back to our basics of doing a full trauma assessment as well and making sure that there's nothing, there's no distract, the, the burn isn't distracting us from some of the other sinister things that are going on. Absolutely. And, and vice versa, that the obvious uh, pelvic crush injury is not distracting from the burn as well. Um, it, is a, it is a tension between the two that you're managing all of their other trauma injuries and the, the burn injury associated with the particular uh, accident as well. Moving on uh, to breathing, we're looking to see whether breathing is adequate. And one of the concerns we have about breathing is if they have sustained uh, significant uh, circumferential chest burns, we worry about about uh, those proteins tightening and therefore their chest becoming uh, like a solid drum essentially. So losing that um, free expansion um, and there is always that uh, potential that they will need an escherotomy before they are transferred to us to enable expansion of the, of the chest. 
Moving on to circulation, um, all of your normal assessments, we're looking at capillary refill, not just of the burn injury itself, but of the overall patient looking at their peripheries. Um, fluid resuscitation is a really important part of the, the circulation component. And the point that I need to make about fluid resuscitation is whilst there is a formula that we use to work that out, and I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point, you need to titrate it to the way the patient is responding because overhydration and then you risk needing to intubate them from airway edema, underhydration and you risk an acute kidney injury. So it's a very fine, fine line in terms of managing their circulation, but it is about maintaining an adequate blood volume, but not overfilling them because that can cause issues with their burn injuries as well and, and tends to um, extend the progression of that injury and it becomes a, a deeper burn injury as well. Yeah, so um, I don't know. I worked as an emergency nurse for um, over 24 years. Um, I saw an escarotomy done once, and it's probably not something that um, most of our listeners who don't work in trauma centres or in places where there are burns units um, will experience. Tell us a little bit about what that's about. So essentially, um, it is a process where some emergency incisions are made through the burnt tissue on both the sides of the chest, down the sternum, and then following the plane of the uh, ribs, a number of incisions are made to loosen up that rapidly contracting tissue so that they are able to um, have adequate airway entry and expansion, essentially. They are not commonly performed, but we do see a couple of them uh, a couple of times a year, we will have that happen. And often once you have created those um, injuries as well, it needs to be taken into account that the patient has X percentage of total body surface area burn and then you have created additional body surface area of wounds and injuries as well. So it um, does prolong their stay and it, it can complicate their uh, their healing process as well. And it creates more wounds that need to be eventually closed by a variety of means. Uh, uh, Escherotomy is commonly done on um, th limbs um, at risk as well or...? Uh, we do do them on limbs that are at risk, but primarily it's on the on the chest and the side of the chest uh, because we have concerns about their breathing. But it's not as commonly performed on limbs. You you talked a little bit about airway, and um, we do spend a lot of time when we first receive a patient if they haven't gone straight to the Alfred, um, talking to the patient about you know your airway is fine now, however, over time it's going to deteriorate. So uh, rapid sequence um, intubation in those patients is really probably one of the most controlled ones um, and unless you leave it too late, obviously. Um, have you ever experienced receiving patients who uh, weren't intubated who probably should have been or...? Um Fortunately, doesn't happen often. I think uh, kudos to the clinicians at, at non-burn centres um, who recognise the patients who need to be intubated before transfer. And it is one of the, the points on the transfer checklist that we use to, uh, at that point, reconsider before you put them on a plane or in a hel helicopter or in an ambulance and send them to us, should they be intubated to ensure a safer transfer instead of needing to do that midway en route. Um, occasionally, we do. And sometimes it's related to other comorbidities that then predispose them to a later airway edema. For example, as we mentioned before, the overhydration um, and overfilling it with fluid that predisposes them to that airway edema. But, but fortunately, no, not, not often. 
Yeah, that that doesn't surprise me. Um, we've got a pretty low threshold for um, intubating yep. patients, especially if you're going to put them in a truck or or on a on a plane or a helicopter. So you you've alluded a few times to some of the ongoing care, and obviously there's a period or a time period where we're communicating with you guys and trying to um, get the patient ready, and actually sometimes even just trying to organise the bed for them to be received to. Um, what about some of our goals of care and nursing management during the patient's ED stay while they're actually waiting um, to get to either our own wards or ICU or uh, a burn centre like the Alfred? That's a really, really good question. We know that starting care of the burn injured patient early helps them in terms of long-term outcomes. So some of the goals of care, for example, is early prompt and responsive pain management. Uh, Morphine is our gold standard for burn injured patients. There is a considerable amount of research in terms of how morphine works in a burn injured patient. And we know that over a period of days as their protein uh, in their plasma starts to change, as fluid starts to leak out of their blood vessels, and as their burn injury starts to really present itself or potentially progress to a deeper injury, we know that morphine has a fairly stable uh, pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic property to it in burn injured patients. So certainly making sure that pain management starts early. Um, unfortunately, with burn injured patients, there is an incidence of chronic pain going forward, particularly if they have lost limbs or they've needed significant grafting. So early pain relief can help to stop that wind up that we see in some burns patients as their treatment progresses and as they need more dressing changes or um, once we start to progress them into a burns bath, for example, after, after grafting. So early pain management is really important. Knowing uh, when to transfer patients is really important as well. We know that there are specific criteria, but some patients will slip through the cracks and won't be transferred. And just to highlight at this point that transfer to a, a state burns unit is really important because we have the resources to deal with their complex needs. We have the psychologists, we have the social workers that will specifically deal with the, the needs of the, the burn injured uh, patient. So early referral and identifying early, early referral is really important. Um, in terms of the wounds themselves, so uh, there tends to be a lot of phone calls to the offered about what do we do with the wounds. There isn't uh, anything specifically um, that is going to make a difference at that point in time, but in terms of managing their pain, covering the wound, covering the wound uh, with Glad wrap is absolutely fine. We never wrap circumferentially, we wrap longitudinally, but covering the burn wound can really help with their uh, pain management. And if it's really about getting their pain under control. And if we get their pain under control, we find that their overall experience is much more positive um, than not having it under control, essentially. One of the mistakes that I've made, and I'm ashamed to say more than once, has been to um, compromise the patient's uh, uh, temperature. Um, what do you want to say about hyper and hypothermia with burns? Really, really good uh, question, Cliff. So the rule that we have is to cool the burn and warm the patient, uh, particularly if it is a large uh, total body surface area burn, there is a tendency to put people in a shower at home and uh, AV will absolutely encourage people to get in the shower and to try and cool the cool the burn. And that is absolutely important to stop the burned in, burn injury progressing. 
But like you mentioned, we need to warm the patient as well. There are plenty of issues with a hypothermic uh, burn-injured patient. So we need to keep them warm as well. The space blankets are, are really commonly used. Um, in the area that I work in, we have a particular blanket warmer that will warm blankets. So post-dressing changes or a bath, et cetera, the patient is in, in a warm blanket. The warming mats as well can be used. The bear hugger can be applied over the, over the top of the patient as well. Where you can apply it so it's not applying heat directly to the burn injury, um, for example, limbs and legs are really easy to move out from under warming blankets. So you can warm the patient, but you can still cool the, the burn injury itself. So we definitely want a normothermic patient on arrival. Um, we don't want hyperthermia and we don't want hypothermia. So would you suggest that um, we centrally monitor their temperature? If it's a severely injured burns patient, we do centrally monitor their temperature and you can do that by a nasogastric tube that has monitoring in or an IDC that's got a monitor in it as well, but not for the smaller burn injuries. Just for um, more significant ones? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to bring you to one of the ones that um, not perplexes because we've got some nice rules around it, but you alluded to the fact that you need to really walk a tightrope with fluid management. So do you want to take us through fluid management? Sure, absolutely. So in the Victorian Adult Burn Service, we use a modified parkland formula, and that formula is three to four mils of a crystalloid fluid times their total body surface area that has been burnt times their weight. We then end up with a volume of fluid that needs to be given to that patient. We give half within the first eight hours and the remaining half over the next 16 hours after that. There are some differences for children, but for adults, that's the formula that we use uh, essentially, and we titrate it based on how the patient is responding to that. Sometimes our patients will require more fluid, sometimes they will require less fluid. Fluid overload is not a good uh, position for a burn injured patient. It does actually increase the risk of their burned wound progressing, not to mention the other issues it creates in terms of uh, needing to cut rings off fingers later if that hasn't already been, been done. Um, and obviously, inadequate fluid resuscitation predisposes them to an acute kidney injury as well, which is not a, an ideal state. So our um, goals would be set on urine output? Urine output is absolutely one of them. Blood pressure is another, heart rate is another, and looking at overall um, edema and chance of airway edema as well. Yeah, sure. And depending on the injury, uh, things like measuring, looking at their JVP can actually be really challenging. I know um, that those usual markers of, uh, you know, uh, physical uh, assessment signs of, of good hydration sometimes aren't that easy with a, with a patient who's been burnt. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely correct. Even things as simple as feeling a, a radial or a brachial pulse through burnt tissue can be really very difficult once it starts to, to harden up. It can be very difficult to feel that. So what about um, other um, invasive monitoring um, such as IDCs and central lines? Do you guys want us to do that before we transfer the patient? It's, it's really based on clinical need for things like inserting central lines. Uh, we always ask that a, a burn-injured patient with greater than 20% total body surface area has two large-bore IV cannulas inserted, preferably through non-burn tissue where possible, but sometimes that isn't always possible. Um, and a central line or intraosseous device may be, may be used, and we would prefer to, to have that available to us. Um, in terms of IDCs, it's really interesting that you raise that because 
even if the patient doesn't have perineal burns, for example, but they have uh, upper thigh or, or lower uh, abdomen and pelvic burns, the edema that can occur in that area can be quite significant and the urethral meatus can actually close over from the edema. So early insertion of an IDC is actually really important, even more so if there is perineal burns, but it certainly does help us because by the time they get to us at the Victorian Adult Burn Centre, often you are unable to visualise that meatus and insertion of an IDC under aseptic technique can be really difficult. patient to look like when they're leaving? Really good question, Cliff. So um, obviously, as we talked about earlier, making sure that the airway is secure, taking those few extra seconds to reassess the patient and think, do they need to be intubated prior to, to transfer? Do they have IV access in and is it going to be suitable for, for what you need? Uh, as we mentioned, if it's a, a large burn injury, they should have two large bore IV cannulas inserted prior to uh, transfer, particularly because their pain management can be unstable and if they're a, a trauma patient with other injuries as well, they may need a significant amount of analgesia. So making sure that we have uh, secured and patent IV access, that fluid resuscitation has commenced. Whilst we can commence it at the, at the Alfred, overall outcomes are better if it is started uh, early and we can always titrate as we need to upon arrival that their urinary catheter has been inserted and it is secure and that will also help you to uh, titrate their fluid resuscitation, making sure that they've got adequate urine output, that their pain is, is well controlled before we start to, to move them. Their overall experience can be a painful one, so making sure that they are uh, well controlled in terms of pain management. Yeah, because we've got time, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep, definitely. Pain management shouldn't be something that, that comes last for these for these patients. In terms of their wound, um, if they're going to be transferred within six hours, then the glad wrap, as you mentioned, nothing much has changed there. Uh, longitudinally, you can wrap limbs or, or wrap over the, the burn injury and you can wrap it with gauze to, to hold it in place and secure it. If it's going to be longer than six hours, um, that's when we would start to ask you to consider things like a silver dressing or a paraffin gauze dressing um, just to try and reduce microbial contamination and uh, prevent any further progression of the, the burn injury. Small blisters, if they're greater than two and a half centimetres, you're welcome to debride those, particularly if they're over areas of joints, etc., and it's causing pain and discomfort as the patient is moving wrists, hands, elbows, uh, knees, etc. And normal saline can be used for, for cleaning those wounds. Um, there doesn't need to be anything particular for those. So debriding um, smaller blisters, um, do you leave the uh, the skin intact or? We, we would remove it. If you're going to debride the blister, then it all needs to be removed as well because leaving it sitting there is a, is a repository for microorganisms. So um, lots of analgesia prior above what they are already receiving baseline so that it is their pain is well managed, but we would remove all of that. We would de-roof the blister and then remove all of the, the tissue around it rather than essentially removing the fluid and leaving a flaccid blister there. Excellent, gotcha. So um, on, on top of that, um, you, we've alluded a little bit to uh, infection, which is a, a huge risk for um, Burns patients. Uh, prophylactic antibiotics, are they? Um, it depends on whether the wound is likely to be uh, contaminated or not. So one of the... Uh, 
things that we see commonly, for example, is the person has been injured and they've been put in a dam for cooling. We know that dams often, there's cattle around, there's farm animals around. It is likely to be very contaminated water. So we may consider prophylactic antibiotics, but as a minimum, they should always have an ADT booster um, because tetanus is obviously a, a significant injury or significant risk when you have a, a large burn injury. So with Andes, we get in touch with you, have a discussion about it and, and, and take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And if it's going, if the patient is going to be transferred to the Alfred quickly, that's something that we can probably do on arrival once we've been able to assess the extent of their injury. But certainly get in touch with us and ask questions if you've got them. Yeah, right. Is there anything else you can think that we should be doing before we move on to our next question? Um, certainly making sure that their next of kin... Uh, is aware that they're going to be uh, transferred, um, particularly with uh, children. Obviously, at the Victorian Adult Burn Service, we primarily take adults, but sometimes we do take younger children, um, depending on, on capacity. So making sure that parents in particular are aware whether their child will be going to the children's or whether they will be going to the Victorian Adult Burn Service at the Alfred. So you brought up children, so your fault. <laughs> um, I know that children aren't one of your main cohorts. Um, but a common question that we get from parents in the ED is about scarring. Um, and in as much as you feel able, what kind of response can you recommend to the listeners when a parent asks about scarring with their children? Uh, that's a really good question. And I may be sorry that I, I raised this, but it's really difficult to comment on scarring because everybody will scar differently. Some patients will end up with hyperpigmentation. Some patients will end up with hypopigmentation. Some patients will end up with uh, excessive scarring. Some patients will end up with contractures. It really depends on the individual. And I know that can be difficult for anyone to hear is that we can't give you an exact answer, but there are some practical things that we can do to reduce the risk of scarring. The first one is that once the injury has healed uh, to an extent, the dressings are no longer required lots of moisturiser and frequently to keep the skin soft and flexible. The simple act of massage over burn injuries can reduce the risk of, of increased scarring and to keep the injury uh, flat or the, the scarring flat, sorry. Um, sunscreen is really important. We, we stress sunscreen because without sunscreen on a burn injury, you risk wound breakdown and you risk changes in pigmentation of that uh, tissue and identifying wound breakdown early as well. So often to reduce the risk of, of uh, hypertrophic scarring, we use pressure garments or silicon garments. And by nature of wearing a garment up to 23 hours a day, for some of the garments, you can end up with little pressure injuries forming and wound breakdown. Our aim is to reduce the risk of, of the wound breaking down once it has healed and you have left hospital. So those Simple tips do have a significant difference in, in long-term outcomes and scarring, but everyone unfortunately scars differently. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and I think your response initially was very much the way I have responded to parents over the years. And it's a bit of we, we don't know and we have to watch and wait. But it's, it's actually nice to be able to hear that so that we can say, however, you know, there are these, you know, there's been a lot of work done in this area and, and these are the sorts of things that will be happening as time goes by with your kid. Um, if the listeners wanted to find, you know, the most up-to-date evidence-based ED burns management resources, where would you recommend they go, James? So there is a dedicated website uh, in Victoria that encompasses both the Royal Children's Hospital and the Victorian Adult Burn Service uh, at 
the Alfred Hospital and the address is uh, www.vicburns.org.au. Um, that website has a great uh, one pager on the initial management of a severely injured burn victim or survivor, as well as further information that may be required in terms of um, whether to insert a nasogastric tube or not, when do we start early uh, enteral feeding to try and re um, maintain their caloric and, and protein intake. So it really is the one-stop shop for any information related to, to burns within Victoria for adults or children um, and provides all of the numbers that you need to contact services at both hospitals as well as the retrieval service as well. That's perfect. Um, and we'll pop the website in uh, link in the show notes. Finally, um, I guess there are many times in the ED that we're kind of left wondering about how our patients fared. Um, a lot of the time I'll just ring uh, ICU a few days later and see, you know, how, what, their outcomes, how, what their outcomes are looking like. Um, if there's any feedback about how we manage our patients while they're in our care, what would be um, your advice to ED doctors and nurses about following up on their patients once they leave the ED? So you're certainly welcome to to ring and speak with us to see how the how the patient is is progressing and how their management um, was handled initially. The other thing with uh, burn injured patients is there is a very clear repository where their injuries are recorded, their outcomes are recorded, and their progress is recorded. So um, that information is published yearly as well, and clinicians are welcome to get on uh, to the website and have a look at how people are, are faring overall. Um, Anybody who unfortunately dies as a result of a burn injury is a coroner's case as well, and those cases are, are freely available and reported. So um, from that perspective, there is learning from that as well, and clinicians can certainly look that up too. Excellent. Great advice. James, it's been an absolute pleasure. Do you have any anything else that you'd like to, uh, anything you want to spruik before we sign off? Um, really just the vicburns.org.au website is where everybody needs to go for any information or, or questions. Um, it really has got everything you need for initial management, ongoing management, resources for patients as well. If it's a small burn injury, for example, and they're heading home from the ED, it's got everything that you need to manage burn injured patients. Hi, James. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks, Cliff. Thanks for listening in. Just a reminder that none of the opinions or thoughts shared on the show necessarily represent those of Cena or our employers. The music you're listening to is by Ben Maswick and the Millions. Um, they can be found on iTunes and Spotify and all the usual places. If you have a suggestion or a recommendation for a guest on the show, why not head over to thisemergencylife.com and leave us a message, or you can email us at thisemergencylife at gmail.com. You've been listening to This Emergency Life, a podcast about your emergency life.